Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Tonight's scripture will be 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 23. Do you know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Take care that no one deceives himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in the sight of God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise by their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are useless. So then, no one is to be boasting in people, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Amen. 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 Good evening, church. It's good to see you all tonight. We are continuing our series uh, through the books of the Corinthians, the letters to the ancient church at Corinth, written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul. And uh, our reading is going to be tonight. Our text will be from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 23. But we're going to begin with verses 16 and 17. And this is a very important passage uh, for us to understand the nature of the church and to understand maybe a little bit about worship and to understand a little something about all of life and, and how we relate to God in the different areas and aspects of our life. So I hope that you'll pay attention to what we talk about this evening. First of all, let's begin here in verse 16. The Apostle Paul asks a question. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Let's stop and get the first part of the question. It's a compound question, the first part. Do you know, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. That's a profound thing to say. And it begins our thoughts this evening as we think about what it means to be the temple of God. Now, first of all, I want everyone to recognize it is not something that you can tell in English. Uh, but, of course, the New Testament was not originally written in English. The New Testament was originally written in ancient Greek, ancient common Greek. And the pronouns that are translated you in this passage in our English New Testaments, uh, of course, the, the, the pronoun you in English can be either singular or plural, depending upon the context. That's why I've said before, as a good Tennessean, I wish that Bible translators would use the word y'all, because it just makes everything clear. And what Paul is saying here is the word y'all. In Greek, it would be the equivalent of the word y'all. He says, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And you need to recognize that because there have been some arguments, some applications of this text that have been traditionally used in Christendom for a long, long time that are based upon the you in that passage being singular and the body in reference being yours individually. That is Paul's argument in chapter 6, not in chapter 3. And so if we're going to interpret chapter 3 correctly, we need to recognize that Paul is not talking about the individual Christian except in the sense that the church is made up of the collective of individual Christians. And so it is the whole body of all of God's believers all over the world that together in this age ruled by Jesus, Jesus having accomplished the, the uh, fulfilling of the law and the establishment of the eternal kingdom, every single Christian in all the world makes up the temple of God. And so we, plural, y'all and me, us together are God's temple in this age. And this is uh, the argument that Paul is making, except he's not putting it so much in the form of an argument as he is simply stating the case. He says, don't you know that this is true? In other words, by the point in time in which Paul is writing, they should already have known that the church is the temple today. But there were many, of course, that did not. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we have these words uh, from the Apostle Peter. He says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, again plural here, y'all also, uh, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, Peter goes even farther. He says, yes, the whole of the church is God's temple, and each believer is individually a stone that God has placed in the whole edifice. Each Christian is a stone in God's temple building the temple up. And not only is that the case, but Peter says here that all Christians are part of the holy and royal priesthood. It's not my purpose to, to teach uh, 1 Peter 2 right now, so I'll leave it at that, just as the parallel passage, even though there's a whole lot more to say there. The book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 12 we have here the words of the Lord. Jesus promises, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, that passage teaches us again that as the church of our Lord, we together comprise the whole of God's holy temple in this world. And I've sketched out a little uh, um, diagram, as it were, of the old Jerusalem temple Solomon built, later uh, re rebuilt uh, after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, and uh, I always think about this, and maybe some of y'all do as well, but knowing what I know about the temple, as I'm worshiping each Lord's Day, I'm looking here at the front of the auditorium, um, you know, at whoever's leading worship and just thinking about what's going on, and, uh, you know, oftentimes I'll focus on the very top corner of that because I, I believe that the top corner there of this auditorium has a direct line to God's throne in heaven. That's just kind of the way that I sometimes in my mind uh, think. I can look right through that corner and I just picture myself gazing into heaven as I'm worshiping each Lord's Day. But I often think about these two pillars that are, of course, just for decoration either to my right hand or left. But I enjoy the fact that we have these two pillars here because it reminds me 
of God's temple, the way it was constructed in Jerusalem in the ancient world. And many of you know that those pillars were named by God. And the pillar on the right is named Jachin, or we might say, uh, you know, Joaquin is a, a version of this old Hebrew la- uh, name, but Jachin. And you can see there on the left, and you're thinking, that looks like the dire- he's got the directions wrong. I'll say something about that in a second. Uh, but on the left is Boaz, and the two pillars have this name. And uh, one of the reasons... Well, in fact, when you look at a lot of diagrams that have been made over the years of the temple, lots of times the details have been gotten wrong uh, because people have assumed that left and right is decided based upon standing outside the temple and looking at it. And so you will find published some diagrams of the front of the temple that will have the pillars on the wrong side. Now, that's not a salvation issue in case you're worried about that, but uh, if you read Josephus and older Jewish uh, writers who saw the temple with their own eyes and knew the way that it was understood by them, the directions were based on standing in the holy place inside the temple and looking out the eastern door. And, And from that vantage point, it was the priest's left that is Boaz, the priest's right that is Joaquin. Well, why did God name the pillars of the temple Joaquin and Boaz, respectively. Well, there is, of course, some debate about what the theological significance of that may be. But the name uh, Jachin or Joaquin means he will establish. That's the meaning of that name. Jehovah will establish is the meaning of that name. Boaz means fleetness or strength. And so there have been some theories as to what this means. Uh, Maybe they refer to the pillars of heaven. If you understand the ancient Near Eastern worldview, of which the Israelites were a contributing part and a contributing factor, uh, well, if there was a site that God had chosen to be his temple, they would have thought that invisibly these are the pillars of heaven. This is the very place that heaven is held up from the earth, and that is why God will come down here to interact with us at this place. Uh, Jacob uses language like that when he received the dream of his ladder, thinking that very kind of idea. Perhaps they simply refer to stability and strength. Jacob means he will establish. There's the stability. Boaz means fleetness or strength. So perhaps that is the meaning there. Some have considered mercy and stability. In other words, thinking about the judgments of God. Jacob would then be mercy, that if you trust in God, he will establish you. He will put a, a solid ground beneath your feet and he will build you up and make you alive and give you life and save you. But if you uh, remain at odds with God and impenitently a sinner, well then you will taste God's strength in his wrath on judgment day. Perhaps that is part of the meaning. Some people have said that in a roundabout way they stood for David and Solomon, uh, David being the, the foundation of the true royal monarchy of the whole universe of which Jesus is the son of David and the reigning king who always will be king. He established and built the plans, made the plans for the temple and then Solomon was the strength uh, that built the temple up. And that's a possibility and it might refer to that. Um, We don't know for sure. I would say all of these things are probably true. Each one of them is true. But brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches us that uh, one of the rewards of overcoming sin in our lives and remaining faithful to Jesus is that we become a pillar in God's eternal temple. Now this, remember, we've got to recognize what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. What is the temple? Does this mean God is going to to, uh, transform us into living stone or something and and our eternal job is going to be literally to hold the roof of the temple up? That's not what it means at all. If someone is a pillar 
in any organization, any family, any company, any church. It's someone who is essential to that place. They're holding the place up, and they might as well be part of the framework. They are so important to the proper functioning of that place. And that's what Jesus means in Revelation 3.12 when he says this. And so just thinking about what it means to be God's temple, we're thinking about these things. 1 Corinthians 3 is not about your body, but about the body. It's about the church as a whole, and the church as a whole being God's temple. And so we get to this phrase that we read just a moment ago where God gives us this warning. If anybody destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And what this means in the 1 Corinthians 3 context. Now, those of you that have been here for this series on Sunday night, I hope you can draw from the lessons in the series that have led up to this point, get a little more of a foundation of what we're talking about. But what was going on in the church of Corinth was considerable division, right? They were calling themselves after the name of Apollos and Cephas and, and Paul. And as I said before, they were even making the name of Jesus into a sectarian sort of denominational title for the group of folks that refused to, you know, follow anybody else. Or they wanted to be named by a name that distinguished them from other people's names as well. And so division was a problem. And what was going on there? The reason why there was division was because of a worldly mindset. We've talked about that. There were folks that thought themselves to be wise. But they were wise only in the ways of the world. And they were trying to bring worldly wisdom into the church and wanting the church to function the same way that they expected the world to function. And, and Paul is, has just shut that down so far in previous lessons in this text. And, and so there are Christians in the city of Corinth. Listen, there are members of the Lord's church in the ancient city of Corinth whose behavior is threatening the stability of the ongoing stability of the church. There are Christians in the world today whose behavior flowing from their mindsets is a threat to the stability of the church. And so far from being intended as a warning to the world, although in a secondary sense it is, if there are folks that persecute the church of God and they continue to do so impenitently, God will destroy them. He will destroy them on judgment day. And he may well rain down justice upon them before that day. But it's not either or. It's both and in that case. And this passage teaches that. So when you think, well, you know, we've seen church shootings. Recently it's been other kinds of shootings. God help us and God help this wicked messed up country. We ought not to have to hear about any kind of shootings. But you know there have been church shootings. Even two different congregations in our brotherhood have had wicked men come in and open fire on God's people. And, uh, and, and those, those evil men that have done this thing, God will destroy on judgment day. And, and what they did, whatever their motives may have been, will not pay off. But sometimes Christians say, well, how could God let something like this happen? Well, how could God let anything happen? God lets people have their free will in the world just the way that he set this world up. The people are going to do what they're going to do. God has never promised that he's going to get in any kind of situation in life where somebody's decided to sin and he's going to put, you know, bumper pads around them to keep them from being able to do what they choose to do. That's what judgment day is about, brothers and sisters. God has not promised to keep evil people from doing evil things. He's promised that on judgment day they will pay. Does that make sense? That's God's promise, and it is the only one he has made. So when something happens because someone has done evil, 
in an evil and sinful world, don't raise your fist at God and say, Lord, where were you when I needed you? Where God was when you needed him was looking down from heaven upon Golgotha. That's where he was when you needed him. Do you hear that? Trust in Jesus. You let God decide to allow whatever he wishes to allow. But he's taught us in scripture that if someone sins against this church, he's going to take care of it. Trust in that and be at peace with that. Be at peace with that. But brothers and sisters, what I want us to recognize tonight is that the warning of this passage is not to the world. The warning in this passage is to the church. It's the church being warned. It's members of the church being warned not to destroy the church by continuing in the worldly mindset that was dominating so many of the leaders in the ancient church of Corinth that Paul has been talking about in the bulk of the first three chapters that we've looked at this week. And so I hope that that makes sense to you and you can see how that fits into the whole of the context. Ben Witherington II is one of the foremost conservative scholars in the field of New Testament studies today. And he's written one of my favorite commentaries on the book of 1 Corinthians. So as this series continues, you're likely to, to have a couple of more uh, quotes from this fellow. But he says this, and I think we need to recognize this, and I'm assuming that we understand this, but you never know. We're all in different places of our understanding and spiritual growth. But he says, the Holy Spirit is not a mere force of energy, but a personal presence that dwells within us. Some people will call the Holy Spirit an it, which Scripture never does. If you use the, 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 the pronoun it to refer to the Holy Spirit, you're speaking in an unbiblical way. In every case in the, in the Bible when the Holy Spirit is being considered, he's always a he. It's always he. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It's not person, person, and thing. It's person, person, and person, the three persons that make up the one indivisible God. And so when Paul tells us in this passage that we as the church are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, that means in, in the collective nature of our assembly and our lives bound together by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the blood of Christ, the Holy Spirit is alive in our midst. He's alive in our conversations. He's working providentially through our work. How many of you brothers and sisters sitting in this auditorium tonight have I had conversations with over the last 10 years where we've talked about sequences of seeming coincidences, especially with regard to things that we're teaching on or, or, or things that come up in our classes or our worship services or projects that we're doing, and it's just like there are five or six of these, these seemingly unrelated events that have just fallen into place, fallen into place, fallen into place. Two or three brothers or sisters will have been studying something independently without talking about anything at all, and then suddenly it converges in this discussion in a class somewhere where everybody is like, whoa, this is exactly what I've been thinking about and struggling about and wondering about, and here it is all coming out. How dare someone call that a coincidence? There is no coincidence to that. That's the person of the Holy Spirit who binds us together as God's temple and is very much alive and active in our worlds, in our minds, in our hearts, in our families, and yes, in our congregations. And this is the point that Paul is trying to get across. The Holy Spirit is personally with us when we assemble to worship as a congregation. David Lipscomb 
uh, wrote, the temple of God is not a physical building, but the people of God themselves. We are the dwelling place of God's spirit, and as such, we must be holy and set apart for God. And, and so this context is teaching us in the, the letter to 1 Corinthians, we'll continue to develop this in future lessons, but, but it's teaching us that if we in fact are the temple of, of God, and if the Holy Spirit really does live among us as congregations of his people, well then that's got to shape the way that we understand how we should behave, right? I mean, if I've come into the temple of God, I, I need to behave in a holy way. I need to respect the divine presence that is here. And if you were to have uh, become a time traveler, uh, you know, by some means, uh, and travel back to the ancient world previous to A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed, and, and go to Jerusalem and walk into Jerusalem and, and, and uh, just wander around and see the sights of that city, especially around maybe one of the big feast days, when the population was so high. And you walk around there and you uh, see what's going on in the worship. Come to the temple area. If you were to come into the temple area of ancient Jerusalem and start misbehaving, do you know what would happen to you? Do you realize? Archaeologists, even though the temple has been destroyed, archaeologists have found the plaques that used to be put up around the outer perimeter of the temple, the wall, warning non-Jews against passing these certain gates. You know what would happen if you as a non-Jew wanted to go worship God in the temple in the ancient world and you went beyond that perimeter? A man of the tribe of Levi wearing armor with a sword or spear would run you through to death. Period. Because the word of God forbade unholy people to trespass on that site. Now Paul tells us in a number of passages in this, own, this book, 1 Corinthians 10, is one of them, that all these things that God did in ancient Israel, he did to teach us how to better be followers of Jesus. Now the temple today is not that physical building. The way its boundaries work are not the same. But God's mindset toward the holiness of the temple has not changed at all. Not at all. And if you think because there aren't deacons standing at the four corners of this room wearing armor with spears or whatever else, I've often suggested we should have a couple of deacons in charge of discipline, but that's, that's something for further discussion. I'm kidding, those of you that are worried about that. I'm kidding, okay? All right, uh, all deacons are in charge of discipline, right? <laughs> But, you know, because we don't does not mean that God doesn't care. You, you follow what I'm saying? He cares and he's paying attention. He's already given us these examples in the past so that we will understand his mindset about this. And so God isn't necessarily going to strike someone with lightning from heaven because they've misbehaved in the church and continue to misbehave in the environment of the temple of God. But don't you think for a second that he doesn't know? And if, and if abuse of the church, even from within the church, continues, it's going to be written in God's book. And Revelation chapter 20 tells us on Judgment Day, those books are going to be opened. And then God's going to deal with it. Does that make sense? Do not be an abuser of the Lord's church. Never use church to further yourself to get yourself ahead in life. Do not be a member of the church selfishly that is unchristian. Don't come into the church environment using filthy language. Don't be abusive to people, rude to people, mean to people. Do not come into the church of our Lord and spread teachings that, are, that violate the teachings of the Word of God. 
By no means should you ever presume to be brash enough to actually take violent physical action against any assembly of God's people. What God will do to you on Judgment Day will prove to you that you have made the worst mistake possible. Sometimes I think we just need to preach things in just as, as straightforward a way as we possibly can so that we can understand how serious, how very serious it is what we are called to do and to be as members of the church of our Lord. And I hope that makes sense and I don't have any more time to delve in that further and you're probably ready for me to move on anyway. Another quote from Ben Witherington, and this is sort of a transition in our lesson here. But he says this, The presence of the Holy Spirit in the individual believer and in the church as a whole notice this, is a powerful reminder of the divine presence and power that is available to us. You see, when we think about what we are, the church of our Lord, Christians, God's kingdom all over this world, and we think about the fact that as such we are God's temple and His Spirit dwells among us, and therefore we have the motivation to be holy, to remove sin from our lives, to strive for purity, to constantly be humble and penitent about our weaknesses and our failings so that we respect the presence of God that is here. And, and there's the danger and the threat of judgment if we take these things lightly. There's half of the picture. But the other half of the picture is what I would, would hope that you would want to focus on, which is the more joyful half of the picture which is the picture where when you understand that we have been made into the very temple of Almighty God and that He has given us the Holy Spirit to dwell among us as His people, what, what that says about God's generosity, what that says about what He wants for you and what you're destined for, what it says about how much God is willing to do and how much He's willing to spend and how much He's willing to sacrifice to see to it that you are what you need to be and that you have what you need to be. Man, I tell you what, this is one of the greatest things that God has ever done. It sure is. Talk a little bit about the history of the concept of temple. I'm not going in exact order of the version notes if you're following that, but this is there. What temple means? Temple is the word for any place God chooses to make His presence known and able to be experienced in peace by His creation in some way. Let me repeat that line and please listen. Temple is the word for any place that God chooses to make His presence known and able to be experienced in peace by His creation in some way. Now, what this means is that, and of course, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 bear this out. God's original intention was that the whole world would be his temple, a place where humanity would dwell with him in peace and would, in a priestly way, mediate his reign over all of his beautiful, glorious creation. But our forefathers chose sin instead, and as such, they profaned this good creation of God, and God's whole plan of redemption began. And that's where we get this concept of temple, because God, in the process of, of slowly revealing his will over the course of the centuries, had to then teach sinful people the concept of temple. In other words, how to be in his presence without it costing you your life, all right? That's the kindness of God. That's what temple means. It is God teaching us how to be in his presence without it being dangerous to our health. Now, I realize when I say things like this, lots of folks that have gotten a lot of uh, really weak uh, teaching about Christianity in our current era of time, as, and I'm... I wish I didn't have to say this, but lots of teaching and lots of pulpits and lots of churches is really weak 
And a lot of folks have this idea that God is just this big old grandfather in the sky whose whole purpose for existing is just to constantly spoil us. Like it is, of course, a good grandfather's job to do. <laughs> but God is not your grandfather, God's your father. And there's a difference between the role of your father and the role of your grandfather, right? Granddaddy's there to spoil you and to send you home to daddy to, well, to do something other than spoil you, right? And I realize that's a human relationship that we're thinking about, but we need to recognize, uh, Paul tells us in the book of Romans uh, chapter 11, we are to behold the goodness and severity of God. Goodness toward those who trust Him and keep faith with Him. Severity toward those who rebel against Him. And so we need to keep these two things in mind. So that's what temple means. We think of worship, we think of communion, we think of spiritual community. This flows outward from God's presence in the temple with the aim of filling the whole earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the seas. Habakkuk 2, verse 14. The old temple was outside. It was a house of prayer for all the nations. It was a place to go. And what that also meant is that most places didn't have temple at all. It was like a, the temple was like a lighthouse of truth, goodness, beauty, and holiness, drawing all people to God. It was where people were supposed to worship. Go learn John 4, and you'll understand what that means. The new temple, however, the temple that Christ has built as a product of His death, burial, and resurrection and ascension is inside of us. Now, as the old temple was a place you had to go to get to God, the new temple is God having come to us. He is in us. And so therefore, wherever we are in the world, that's where the temple is. We take temple with us wherever we go. And so just as people in the old world would make a pilgrimage to the temple, it's kind of like the temple is making its pilgrimage throughout the world through us in the New Testament system today. And I think that is a beautiful, beautiful message. The nature or the structure or bounded area is not what most is most important. What, what makes the structure or area holy is uh, what makes the area holy that's important, and that is God's presence there, and that we do not defile it with sin or suppress the influence of His goodness. Seven steps. The Bible unfolds uh, the theological theme of temple throughout Scripture. Eden, the ark, the tabernacle, the temple, Christ with us here on earth in His ministry, Number six, the Holy Spirit dwelling in believers, and we look forward to number seven, the age to come. Back to the text just for a moment. Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Remember, Paul was talking to some folks that have been heavily under the influence of Greek philosophers. And folks that know Greek philosophy real well, and by the way, if you've ever studied Greek philosophy, I urge you to, not at the expense of your Bible study, but in addition to it, that'd be fine. Lots of good truth in, in the old Greek philosophers that you can grasp and apply in your life to be a good thing, but there's also a lot of junk too. So if your worldview is built up on the, the, the philosophy of this world, the wisdom of this world, it, it's going to be a mixed bag. Yeah, there are going to be some things that are going to help you to succeed in various ways in your life, but there's also going to be a lot of stuff that's going to lead to sin. It's going to lead to sin. So Paul has already made the point in chapter 2 of this book that all of these hotshot philosophers really didn't know anything and they were nothing. And not only is that so, but, but the, the arrogant Jews who were constantly seeking a sign, never trust anybody, never believe anybody without a miraculous sign, Paul's already said that's not the way that Christianity works either. And so Paul is bringing the point here and he's, he's making it even in a broader way. He says, I don't care where you think you got your wisdom. If you think you're wise, whenever you come to Jesus, 
If you think you got it all going on and you think you know something, Paul says you need to become a fool so that you can be wise. And that's another way of saying you don't know what you think you know. And so as Christians, this is one of the reasons why we are constantly urged to be humble. I have changed my mind on so many things so many times over the last quarter of a century in which I've been pursuing ministry vocationally. I can't even tell you all the things that I've changed my mind on. And I've changed my mind on some issues four or five times and back to where I started. And this is part of the process of growing. If you've never changed your mind on anything biblical, you're not studying the book, man. You're not studying I'm not going to have time to finish this lesson today, so I'm just going to go ahead and wrap it up here, and we'll pick up with the rest of what i got to say, Lord willing, next time. But I'm going to end with this because it's a good place to end it. So y'all can fast forward through this if you want, almost to the songs, and I'm not going to worry about it. All right? Uh, but uh, humility, the willingness to change your mind, recognizing that you absolutely, constantly must be a student all of your life. I mean, I just can't think of, of anything more important. And it's so at odds with who we are naturally in this sin-fallen world. Man, we grasp on to something, you know, that we may put to the test a few degrees and put this thing to the test, and, and we think, oh, I've got that nailed down. Or even worse, because this is, this is harder, it's even harder to let go of. You got teachers in your life that have said the same thing, maybe three or four levels of teachers you've had in your life that have said the same thing. Folks around you all your life have been in an echo chamber, nodding their head, yes, amen, that's right, said the same thing. Everybody knows, did you know, believes that. They believe the same thing. Your mom and daddy do. Your grandparents believe this too. Your aunt and uncles do. Tradition. Tradition. So important to us. It ought to be. 21st century America is doing everything in its power to destroy every bit of it. And it is having devastating effects on our society. When you destroy people's roots, you destroy people. You destroy a tree's roots, you kill the tree. You destroy a society's roots, you destroy that society. But people don't attack the roots of a society unless they're trying to build a new one. I promise you that. You need to keep that in mind. Brothers and sisters, just as that's true in the world, it's also true in the church. There's only one foundation that can be laid, and we talked about that last week. It's Jesus Christ himself. He's the foundation. You don't build anything on that that isn't apostolic. What is apostolic? What is right? Is it what grandmom and granddaddy always said, and your aunts and uncles, and Deacon John, and Pastor Phil? Not this Phil, but another one. That's just the name that came to my mind, brother. But hey, it's true here as well. Just because somebody here says it, that doesn't mean it's true. I want to ask you a question. Are you wise? Would you say tonight that you're a wise man or a wise woman? It's not impossible to be. Paul doesn't say in this context that you can't be wise. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Oh, the scriptures are written to help you to truly become wise, especially in the way of salvation. But listen, brothers and sisters, you've been told a lie, not intentionally, but you've been lied to. You've had people all your life tell you that the Bible is easy to understand, and you've got to have help to misunderstand it, and that is just not true. It is just not true. No, the plan of salvation is easy to understand. 
and it is hard to understand and it's hard to misunderstand without help but the bible is hard to understand and do not let anyone lie to you and tell you that that isn't true now all of these truths that get perverted over the course of time are always rooted in something right god didn't write the new testament in in classical Greek, like the Iliad and the Odyssey and that sort of thing, he didn't make it a book for scholars. He wrote the New Testament in the language of the streets, Koine Greek, common Greek, because he intends for the common man to understand it. But not without work. Not without hard work. Not without diligent work. And sustained work. Brothers and sisters, that's the message I'm going to leave with you tonight. If you want to be wise, you do need to recognize that you're a fool. And there's only one way that that is going to change. And that is if your relationship is drawn closer to God because of your prayerful interaction with His revelation of what is wise. And what God needs are men and women of faith who will embrace the wisdom of Christ and so succeed in life at being his disciples, not destroy the temple of God, but to build it up. And as a result, well, we read about the reward there in the book of Revelation. This evening, do you need to respond to the invitation? If you have not owned Christ as Lord and made the decision to submit in repentance to the command to be baptized, the water is ready. We can take care of that tonight. And this evening, if you're a baptized believer that needs the prayers of this church, come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.